0: Good morning, Covenant family. It is so great to see you. If you're a guest with us, either in the building or watching from home, my name is Joel and I'm one of the pastors. And just so right at the outset here, there's not any identity confusion. I am not the same guy who wrote the book that Pastor Chris read from at the outset. I think most of the folks in the building, part of our Covenant family, have got sense enough to know that. Uh, But if you're new to the Christian faith, maybe you're not quite as familiar with the scriptures. I just want to clear that up. That is way above my pay grade, but I'm honored today to preach from the book written by the prophet whose name I am honored to share. So if you have a copy of God's Word, join me in the Prophecy of Joel. We're in week two now of a 12-week series that we began last week simply called Turn. Why are we calling it turn? Because, well, turn is simply the meaning of the word repent, when we see that in the Bible, tesheva, in the Hebrew, metanoia, in the, the Greek of the New Testament. Really, they carry that same sense, that same sort of, of disposition and sentiment, turn. And it's an invitation, actually, something we learned last week. God's call to repent is not him doing this, it is him doing this. I want you to come back to me. What you're doing is not good. The way you're living is not good. The disposition you have is not good. And so beginning that series last week now, 12 weeks we're going to spend with 12 men that we call the minor prophets that are giving us ways, 12 different specific ways in which God calls you and me all these years later to repent. And today's theme coming out of the prophet Joel is this, God wants us to turn away from judgment and toward blessing. God wants us to live blessed, doesn't he? Yeah, he really does. In fact, aren't you, aren't you thankful for the work that he's doing through this body? You just heard one of those stories today from Brother Shane. You're going to hear other stories uh, throughout the, the Easter season. And, I mean, God's just doing incredible stuff. That's actually a sign of what it means for a pastor and people to live under the blessing of God. That's what it looks like. But, but we need to unpack this word blessed today because it's got more in our culture in common with a hashtag than it does the Bible. If you've looked on Instagram, you've looked on Facebook, you've looked on Twitter, whatever your particular kind of thing is, right? That Chinese spareware, spyware, otherwise known as TikTok, all right, And you, wherever you go, wherever you see that word blessed, it's usually got a hashtag in front of it, doesn't it? And it's usually connected to something good that happened in your life. Look, I got a new boyfriend, got a new girlfriend, hashtag blessed. Look at this new car I got, hashtag blessed. Look at this house we upgraded to, hashtag blessed. I got a new job, I got a promotion. My NFL team won, hashtag blessed. I, there's a great misunderstanding that comes from the way our culture uses that term and the way even Christians are so often co-opted into using it that way as well because, I mean, who doesn't want to be positive, right? But blessing doesn't have always to do with material prosperity or even good things happening in your life. In fact, there's a twofold misunderstanding that we'll dive into a little bit this, this morning that has come from this. The first is this, that blessing is the same thing as prosperity. Well, that's prosperity gospel, Most of us know to turn those idiots off, but but there's a a wee bit of that that kind of moves into our lives and and we start to think, okay, well, prosperity, I don't know if it's because we're Americans, I don't know what it is, but it's material prosperity is always a sign that somehow God is blessing us. Nobody that I've seen at least, maybe you've seen somebody on social media do this, but I've never seen anybody go on and their status be, I lost my job today, hashtag blessed, My dog died today, hashtag blessed. I've never seen that. Why is it? It It's because we automatically associate blessing with good things and anything bad that's coming into our life or anything unpleasant or anything that may even stretch us or grow us. The temptation is to think, well, the blessing of God is absent. The second misunderstanding, and it's closely related to the first, is that God's goodness is the same thing as God's blessing. Why do we think that blessing is always associated with good things, pleasant things, things that make my hair stand up, things that make my taste buds go wow? Why do we assume that? Well, it's because we think that God's blessing is the same thing as God, is, is God's goodness. And, and here's what we forget Jesus told us this in Matthew 5 and verse 45 for he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God not only can be, he is very, very good to people he does not bless. And we forget that. All right, Many, many months ago, Kim Jong-un, the supreme leader of North Korea, it was thought that he was going to be ill, uh, that he might be ill even to the point of death. And so there was all this rumor and innuendo and everything worldwide about what would happen if he actually died. Why is that? Because the whole world The whole world, even communist nations, look at North Korea and go, that's jacked up, right? Everybody knows that. And so it's like, let's look beyond where this guy is and where his regime is, and and let's think about this for a minute. And here's what I thought about. Kim Jong-un, like his father, like his grandfather before him, represent and lead one of the most repressive rogue nation states in the world. Billions probably of Koreans. Their blood is on those, the hands of those three men. And yet this guy gets up every day and he enjoys the finest meals, all the power that he wants, everything that he wants, which is another way of saying every good and perfect gift that comes down comes down from the Father of lights, does it not? God is being very good to this man right now, but unless he repents... One day he's going to die and wake up in eternity to discover he never had the blessing of God. These are two different things. And living blessed, likewise, requires two things right at the start about this passage. I want you to see this. Number one, blessing in this passage we look at today is always seen in constant contrast to judgment. So to live blessed, it's not necessarily to live with a full wallet or good health To live blessed is to live with God's approval. To live blessed is to live outside the range of God's judgment. That's what it means. And you and I are going to be called in the prophecy of Joel to want that more than anything. And that's going to be a challenge because there's some really cool stuff in this world, right? Like Mustangs, like 50-yard line NFL tickets, like nice homes like a promotion at work, like a raise that maybe outpaces inflation. Don't know that anybody's had that experience in the last year. But you know what I'm saying? Like, There's a lot of good stuff in this world. There's something Joel is going to call you and me to want more. The approval of God, living outside the range of his judgment. Conversely, to live under judgment is to live outside of his blessing, no matter how fat your banking app is. Now, here's the second thing. All of that before is another way of saying this. If I'm going to ask, am I blessed, that's not the same thing as saying, am I rich? Am I happy? Am I fulfilled? Asking, am I blessed, is synonymous with this question. Am I approved of God? Do I have his anointing? I don't mean that in the the typical way that we typically understand. I mean that in the biblical way that the Bible understands the word anointing. God looks on me and says the same thing of me that he said of his son in whose righteousness I am clothed right now. I am well pleased with you. That, brothers and sisters, is what it means to walk in the blessing of God. And and what we're going to look at today is this Old Testament prophet whose words are both the origin and basis for these concepts. And so let's try to understand right at the outset what's going on in this prophecy. That's a little harder than you think because everything we know about this prophet is found in verse 1 of chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. That's it. That's all we know. We know his name. We know his daddy's name. We know that his name means Yahweh is God. We know his daddy's name refers to vision of God. That is the only thing we know. The only two things we know. We think he was from somewhere around Jerusalem. The reason for that is because of a few specific references in this prophecy that demonstrated his familiarity with the temple, his priestly activities, but, but we really don't know that that's the case. Something else we don't know is when this prophecy was actually written. Scholarly opinion ranges, and these are men and women who love Jesus, who study his word, who believe his word is God's word, who say, some of them, as late as the 8th century B.C. and some as recent as perhaps the 2nd century B.C. There's about a 500-year period of debate, in other words. The bulk of the evidence would narrow it down probably to the roughly 200 years after God's people come back from Babylon... But we also don't know, in addition to this, what this predicted locust plague, which kind of forms the centerpiece of the narrative, is to be understood literally, like is this some coming agricultural disaster or is this an agricultural metaphor because it was an agricultural society that described an invading army that was coming? But whatever this background, the message in these three short chapters vacillates between two primary themes, judgment and blessing. And according to the prophet, here's the call. You have to choose. And you have to choose one or the other. Are you going to live under the judgment of God or are you going to live under the blessing of God? And living not under judgment but under blessing requires that you let go of a lot of other things that perhaps you have associated with blessing. So it's time to choose. And we have all those colloquialisms in our own day, don't we? Time to pick a team. Time to pick a side. Time to get the fence pole out of your rear end. Stop trying to ride two horses with one rear end. You know, all that stuff. Make a choice. That's what God's calling you to do. Joel minces no words here. And and that's the challenge. Turn from living under judgment. And that judgment comes at two levels. There's a temporal level, again, the locusts, Scholars are in debate about whether or not that's literal. If you want your pastor's opinion, then I think based on the, the, it, what I think is the higher likelihood of about a 4th century time frame, th- these are most likely literal locusts, which means that God's people are staring down the barrel of a food desert. Now, we talk about food deserts in North America, and, and there are some real ones. There's some places in urban centers around the world where, where there is food insecurity. We've got places in our own area. You just heard about one of them a few minutes ago. But, but honestly, the solution to that problem, at least in terms of getting immediate relief to that food insecurity, is quite easy because we have these things that we take for granted every day called roads, okay? Uh, it, like vehicles that, that when you turn the key, they actually, there's a great chance they're actually going to start up. So you go to continents like Africa and other places, neither one of those is assured, uh, which is why you have logistical issues sometimes. So, so the worst kind of experience you and I have ever had with food insecurity is just going to a place with really bad food. You ever been there? You ever suffered with your pastor? I was in Philadelphia about a year ago, a little over a year ago. Now, Philadelphia's got amazing food. The city has amazing food, but I wasn't in the city. I was in Jersey. Go ahead and laugh. That's for you, should. All right. I mean, we don't want to stereotype people around here, but come on, it's Jersey. Sure. I had a, uh, I'm sorry for the people in New Jersey, I'm just having a little fun. My buddy, Kevin Brown, is pastor of the Perfecting Church up there, one of our local net partners. And I was up there to help him train some church planners. So I, I drove in, because it's not that far, so I didn't have to fly, and I really don't like to fly unless I have to. And, and I, I drove up, I got there late on Sunday night, I got checked into my hotel, I hadn't seen him, it's dark, so I don't see anything. But I get up, like I usually do on a Monday morning, hungry. And I wanted something to eat. And I thought I will go, and I was up early. It was a couple of hours before the training started. I said, "Surely I will find." I mean, there's got to be somebody who can cook eggs, grits. Well, it's Jersey, maybe not grits. I am a South Carolinian. My standards are pretty high when it comes to grits. But I said, usually I can find a good bit. You know, I couldn't find that thing. Right, here's the one thing I found: McDonald's. Oh, it gets worse. They couldn't even make it hot. That's the nastiest egg McMuffin I have ever eaten in my entire adult life. And I got to the church, and I looked at my friend, Pastor Kevin, and I said, dude, what what gives? Like, there's got to be a diner around here somewhere. And he said, dude, you're in Jersey. There ain't no good food here. (laughs) Food desert, right? But I still got to eat. What's being described in Joel is something far, far worse. We see a warning sent that that desert is coming, and it's that temporal threat that gives rise to to a larger kind of eternal focus in the prophet's mind. It's this theme of the day of the Lord. Now, that's a phrase that occurs some 80 times in Scripture. And every time it occurs, it describes some universal intervention of God into human history. In the New Testament, it is used to describe both the first and the second comings of Jesus. And it always, no matter in what context it's used, involves God judging his enemies. Judgment, blessing, pick a team, one side or the other. All right, This series is about God's invitation to turn. Joel's challenge to the people is that they turn from living under judgment so they can begin living under the blessing of God. But if you're going to make that choice, that requires giving up some things, it requires surrendering some things, and frankly, it requires some perpetual postures. Right? It's like when my kids come up to me and say, Dad, I, I need this, or I need that, or I'm sick and I need medical attention, or I'm sick. What, all right, what do we need to do? What do we need to do to fix the problem? All right? That's one disposition. Here's another disposition. Tell me if you've ever been there, if you're a parent. Hey, Dad, I need some money. You see the difference? Yeah. And not that I'm unwilling in that second category to help them out, but, but there's a posture, right? There's a disposition And we got to give up certain kinds of postures that, frankly, in our own culture, we're prone to hang on to that keep us under judgment. Postures that still tempt us today. And there's two of them. Duplicity, which is just another way of saying they're living a double life. And, And listen, you can live a double life. And it'd be very, very subtle and therefore very, very dangerous. When you hear double life, don't think about some guy with, with one family here and another one in Colorado and neither one of them knows about the other. Certainly, that's an extreme form of duplicity. But we can live duplicitous lives without, getting, without it getting that bad. Duplicity. On the outside, what that means is I appear to love God, but I really don't. We're going to unpack what that looks like. The second one is pride. Pride is an exaggerated opinion of yourself that produces a sense of entitlement. All right. These two things in Israel led to out of order life priorities and they led to sinful motivations. That still happens today. Happens every single time one of us decides to give anything less than our whole hearts to our Creator. When we make life, all about us we develop this unhealthy sense of entitlement and whether or not that disposition pays off for us we are at that moment living under the judgment of God here's the good news because he loves us he warns us about it people think the call to repent is some evil angry grumpy old man sitting on a throne up there who's just angry no this is a loving God listen if he was mad at you he'd just squash you like a bug There'd be a big old greasy spot where you used to be. That's not God. He loves you, so he warns you. And he does that through his prophets. So so let's dive a little more deeply into the prophet Joel. And let's look at four different exchanges that you and I have to make to live again under the blessing of God. Here's the first one. Take that duplicity and exchange it for authenticity. Join me in verse 12 of Joel chapter 2. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Yeah. No, no half-hearted effort here. No a few steps here and then back this way. You give me everything. With fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Come back to me with the inner man. That's what whole heart means. Starting right here. See, if if inside is set right, the outside, that won't be a problem. Too many of us worry about the image more than the reality. We worry about how things look more than we worry about how things are. And, And the result is we end up becoming what Jesus described a whitewashed tomb it looks good on the outside, but inside there's all kinds of rot. Jesus says, you know, if you'll reverse that process and actually start by looking inward at your heart, what comes outside will be exactly what God wants, and you won't have to worry about image anymore. You won't have to do it. But you've got to exchange that duplicity for genuine authenticity and then to give examples of that. There's some tangible evidence here of that return, fasting, weeping, mourning. Now, here's the thing. You can give your whole heart to the Lord and and that be the result of it. In fact, I don't think you can give your whole heart to the Lord and it result in anything less than what Joel's talking about here. But here's the flip side. You can also fake all of those things. Did you know the ancient world had paid mourners? Who knows that? Yeah, a few of you. You You remember your background, your Bible story. It's an honor shame culture, the Middle East. Still is. And so, you know, if there's only 15 people that show up to your funeral, that's very dishonorable, not only to the deceased, but, but to the family. And so more wealthy families, to make sure that that dishonor was not communicated to the larger culture, they would compensate in advance people to come, come to sit in the funeral, and to bawl their eyes out. I'm talking about wailing, crying, throwing themselves over the casket kind of mourning. But none of it was real. None of it was real. God says you can do that, and in your heart, there's not really a lot of grief that's there. You you can fake this stuff. You can do this stuff for the purposes of, of showing off. Jesus warned against fasting and other religious observances done for the purpose of showing off. Wash your face, he said. That's another way of saying it. Don't be walking in here if you're fasting like so that everybody sees that you're fasting. Don't do this, he says in Matthew 6, in order to be noticed by them. Joel is sending a a similar warning. So if I'm fasting, then it it is my duty to do that. It's not that that I'm trying to hide it from people, but I'm not trying to make a show of it either. Right. I'm, not, I'm not demonstrating weakness because I haven't had food in five days. I'm not, I'm not presenting myself purposefully in a way that you look at me and go, Pastor Joel, what's wrong? You've been back to Jersey? Like, what, what's? No, no. You do that out of a heart that desires to please the Lord, and, and if, if people find out about it, that's fine, but you keep it to yourself. That was the instruction of Jesus, Don't do this, right? You can fast, you can weep, you can shout, you can raise your hands, you can tithe, you can speak in tongues, you can sing, you can preach without your heart changing one bit. And so Joel speaks into that because he represents a God who loves us and does not want us perpetually living under that delusion. And he says the following in the refrain, rend your hearts, not your garments. The tearing of the tunic in the ancient world was a sign of great distress and relief. And grief it was also a, an expression that someone was remorseful for sins they had committed. Joel says, yeah, you can do all that outward stuff and nothing change on the inside. You can pretend, you can do the religious stuff, and still be under judgment. So here's the invitation. Tear your heart rather than your clothes. When you tell me you're sorry, you better mean it. Anybody ever got a non-apology apology? Yeah. Well, whatever I've done, I'm sorry. Why don't you just kick them in the teeth instead? If I offended you, I'm sorry. That's not an apology. An apology is specific things that have been raised, like the awareness in your, and, and we. why do we do that? You're like, some of you have been the victims of that. Like, I don't know, why do people do that? Because we do it to God all the time, all the time. How do I know that? Because in his word, there are repeated warnings against this. Lord, whatever I've done, whatever I've done, go do some soul searching. Oh my, my goodness, I've had guys get caught cheating on their wives and then they'll say, i I'll do anything. Okay. I'm with you, bro. I got you. People, people sin. People sin horribly. If she says she wants to try to work this out with you, we're committed with you to do it. What do you want to do? I'll do absolutely anything. Okay. All right. Well, if you want to get this healed, probably didn't start in the bedroom, probably started in some other room of this house. It's going to be a long process to get this done, to get this healed, to restore trust, to do all those other things. The process of repentance is long confession is good but it's just the first step in repentance and so here's some of the things you're going to have to do oh and by the way you're going to need to see a therapist because this is both above my ability to help you walk from a to b and it's beyond my bandwidth i got a church to lead and i can't be therapist to 900 people like i can't do that the kind of investment that it takes okay all right i'll do anything and then the next day oh my gosh these therapists are expensive well, yeah, they have, they have mortgages to pay. What would you think it was going to be free? Well, I just, I don't know, is there, is there something free? You know what, there is. Uh, we have a counseling office here at the church. Now, they're not going to be able to give you the full spectrum of what I think you need because their bandwidth is limited as well. But if you want to go see one of them, then, yeah, that, that won't cost you anything. Yeah, well, well when are they available? We'll hear all the times so, oh, well, none of that works for me. Hey, we, aren't you the same guy that said, I'll do anything? That's what it looks like to rend your garment and leave your heart unchanged. All right? And, and at any level of sin, rebellion, judgment, that's what it looks like. All right, somebody gets a DUI or some other kind of, they get in some other kind of trouble with the law and they, at first, okay, I'm ready to face the consequences until they learn what those consequences are. And then their story is about all the injustice in the world and how they are the victim. Y'all don't know anybody like this, do you? It's a little quiet, too. They might be sitting next to you. Or maybe you are that person. I don't know. I just know Joel knows some people like this as well. And so he says, enough with the talk, enough with the show, enough with the duplicity. Stop tearing at your clothes and let the Lord of the universe tear your heart open. That's what you need. You need wholesale change. When you do that, here's what you're going to discover. He is gracious. That God is gracious gracious. You know what grace means? It means you get what you don't deserve. That's what it means. You get what you don't deserve. He is merciful. That's the contrasting theme to grace. It means he will withhold from you what you do deserve. He's slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. His desire is not to judge you, but it is to change you. and and here's why okay if you want to love him with your whole heart that involves also loving the things he loves hating the things he hates and God as we heard last week we looked at this reference in the book of numbers is not a man that he should lie God is God wants authenticity in our lives because he is authentic he is consistent guys this is This is the reason the church exploded in the first century. There were all these localized deities who had these inconsistent approaches even to their own morality, let alone to the morality of the the people over whom it was perceived that they they ruled. You could be a fisherman, lose your entire business just because Neptune got up on the wrong side of the bed. And so all of a sudden, here comes Jesus. Representing the triune God and the early Christians spread that message, and the Roman Empire looked at it and said, Wow, there's a God who's consistent. The rules are it's not that He won't judge, but He's not going to lose His temper. He has a perfect temper, He's not going to get out of control. He has complete control. He can be depended on. Why? Because he is to his very heart authentic and consistent. And if we're going to have this kind of relationship with him, our repentance has to produce a consistent heart that reflects this. No duplicity. That is incredibly hard. It is a lifelong battle for most of us. It really is. In fact, researchers tell us that there are 102 nonverbal cues that if you are an investigator of any type, you've been trained in this to try to get some sense of whether or not somebody's lying to you. Averted gaze, blinking, increased volume, they're shifty. Even, you know, even with all that research and all that training, the average police officer still gets it wrong 50% of the time. You know why that is? Ronald Fisher, who's trained FBI agents says this, good liars are very good. Although they feel nervous, that feeling is internal, not what others observe. Now guys, that shouldn't surprise us at all. Jeremiah has already told those of us who follow Jesus that the heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked to the point that we can't even know the depth of it ourselves. We need a God who changes our hearts and so the prophet says you know what quit tearing at your clothes quit doing all this silly crap that you think is going to make a difference and let God plunge a scalpel into your spiritual chest and make the changes that need to be made surrender yourself to him and when he does that when he just rips you open it it ain't all pleasant right not everything's rainbows and unicorns when it comes to living blessed But that's when we become who he invites us to be and you experience the blessing of his abounding love. So exchange number one, duplicity for authenticity. Here's exchange number two, pride for humility. Verse 14 of chapter 2, who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. A grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. These words are spoken with appropriate humility. They're indicative of a truly converted heart. They're, They're not presumptuous. We come before God so presumptuous sometimes. It's this idea that Bonhoeffer called cheap grace, that I can just do whatever I want, live whatever I want, have whatever attitude I want to have, and, and, and then after all, I can just get forgiveness. That, you know, that's a holdover from Catholicism, right? One of the reasons that the Protestant Reformation happened was to get out from under that idea that, okay, if I do a certain thing, I got to go pay a certain kind of penance. I got to walk up steps on my knees. I got to do all this nonsense. I've got to listen, but, but we still hung on to, to this idea that it's in my capacity to do it and, and, and not God's capacity to reach in and change me. And yet here we go. And because of that, we act presumptuous. See, if you think there's something you can do to live under the blessing of God to straighten all that out in your own life, then you're gonna. If you come before God thinking that you're entitled to something, it's because you thought you did it. And so there's some pride. There's some presumption in that. And it sounds a little something like this: I'll make this choice. I'll commit this sin. I'll live in a certain way. And. I'll take advantage of this situation, and I'll ask forgiveness for it, and it'll be okay. After all, Pastor, doesn't the Bible say if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive? It does say that. But but you didn't read the rest of the sentence. To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We love to skip over the parts that we don't want to obey. He will forgive Then he will cleanse. The way you know somebody's been truly been forgiven is they have been cleansed. They've been cleansed. Confess. And then he will cleanse you from unrighteousness. In every encounter in which Jesus himself uttered the words, your sins are forgiven, there is some iteration of this phrase as well. Go and sin no more. Turn loose of it, all right? the words we find here, they're not presumptuous like that. These are not demands. He starts with the who knows, right? He's like, I can't guarantee that the locust plague won't still come. I can't do that. I can tell you what the right thing is to do. I can tell you God has promised us we will live under his blessing. Even if we turn the catastrophe... that's the key to humility before God, brothers and sisters. It's not presumptuously demanding certain results from Him based on our behavior. It is never forgetting that you and I will never get what we deserve. And that's the best news ever. I'm never going to get what I deserve. Isn't that great news? You are never going to get what you deserve. That's the hope expressed here, that repentance will be followed with God's loving restoration. By the time we get to the New Testament, we read this contrast in in 1 Peter 5. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humility before God, just simply put, is a posture of complete surrender. I'm not hiding anything. I'm not holding back anything. September 2nd, 1945. It was a great day for the U.S. military. It was the day the Japanese surrendered to us. Representatives from the Empire of Japan joined Douglas MacArthur, the general, the commander of the Pacific Fleet, on board the USS Missouri, a 45,000-ton battleship to sign the official instrument on behalf of the Emperor of Japan. And as they stepped on board and they met our American leadership, they extended a hand. They had studied enough that they knew in the Western world, this is how you offer peace, how you offer appreciation, how you offer recognition. MacArthur simply stood there and would not return the handshake. And after a few awkward moments, he simply looked back at them and said, swords first. Before they could shake hands, before they could sign a peace treaty, before the war could end, They had to take their ceremonial samurai swords and give them to the ones who'd conquered them. That's a perfect picture of what God's looking for. Swords first. What what are you hanging on to? What is it? What is it that keeps you from the repentance and the blessing that God invites you to? What's he identifying in your life? Now I don't know what that is. That he's saying... You can have everything your pastor's describing and everything the Word of God has grabbed, but you've got to give me that first. What is it? Any fences around any part of your life. Humility is the posture that says, I'm giving him everything. No conditions. So duplicity gets exchanged for authenticity. Pride gets exchanged for humility. Number three, lesser priorities get exchanged for greater priorities. Verse 15, blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast call a solemn assembly gather the people consecrate the congregation assemble the elders gather the children does this sound does this sound urgent sounds urgent doesn't it even nursing infants let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber So that reference to the trumpet is actually this this instrument called a shofar. It was a ram's horn. Sometimes when the Israelites heard it, it signified a call to battle. Sometimes it signified a call to worship. But regardless of the occasion, every time God's people heard that sound, it sent one clear message. Whatever you're doing, drop it. You have new priorities now. There's something new that's coming. And that priority here is emphasized with the following bring all the leaders together in one place even if you're nursing a baby hey come sit in the cry room but come it's that important yo i'm sorry you got a wedding planned cancel it that's pretty urgent and the message here is that repentance as part of corporate worship is to be a priority for god's people that's it one major indicator of a changed heart toward god is a changed disposition toward corporate worship. That makes me sad because I don't know if you've noticed or not, but around the country, and I know you probably, you're looking around going, this room is full. What are you talking about? I get all that. I get that. I'm just talking about the general sense of, of where the nation is, where our culture is in response to three years of cultural turmoil and toxicity commitment to corporate worship, which by the way has been demonstrated by research, not Christian research, secular research, people who came to church and made it a priority are the only subcategory of people who had a mental health increase during the pandemic. Everybody else, their level of mental health went down. Everybody. That's That's from about a year ago. Corporate worship, though, has not gone up. It's gone down. And I, that's tough. It, it's tough for a guy like me to say it because I, I get that the, the reflexive posture, especially if you're watching at home in your PJs, is, yeah, Joel's just trying to get me in the building. He's just trying. Listen, I, I, and I don't know a better way to just express my heart to you. I'm not angry with you. I'm not. Um, I am brokenhearted. And I'm anxious for the souls of so many people who have lived in such a way that proves their commitment to God just isn't their highest priority. It's just not. It's not. Who have taught their children that perpetual weekend vacationing and travel ball is more important than the corporate worship of the Lord Jesus. And then in a few years... What my fear is going to be, there's going to be some parents going, why why doesn't my kid take their faith seriously? Because you spent 18 years teaching them not to. I love you. I really do. I'm not trying to be a legalist here. I'm saying you got to check your heart. Responding to God's invitation here means making your response a priority. And Listen, this is not a, this is not a new problem okay? This is not unique to Shepherdstown or the United States or the 21st century. It goes all the way back to Matthew chapter 22. There's a parable there. The son of the king is getting married and he's prepared this huge feast. He's killed the fattest beast on his land. He's got meat. He's got drink. He's got a table spread that'll feed people for a week and he's pulling out all the stops and he says, come and enjoy. And verse 5 says, they paid no attention. One was focused on his farm another on his business. They were in proximity to the kingdom, but the king had no priority in their lives. That's, that is too many people today. And, and when you hear something like this, you can, you know, this is the great thing about freedom of religion and freedom of association and all those things we enjoy in this wonderful country of ours, is, is you, can, you can choose to do what a friend of mine's golfing buddy did. They, they were golfing one day and they were out and I don't know, around, around hole number three he had remembered that his friend had just come back from the doctor, and he said, tell me about your doctor's visit. He said, oh, it wasn't a very good visit at all. He said, apparently I've reached that age and that stage of life. I've got to take three new medications. Also, i got to stop eating red meat. He's told me i got to eat a lot more vegetables. He's told me i got to exercise at least an hour a day, get on the treadmill, get on the elliptical, get out on the golf course, and don't rent the cart. That's torture, guys, I'm telling you. But he said, just, you know, do all these things. These are all, the, I mean, he gave me a laundry list of stuff that I needed to do, and he told me within the next 10 years my life would depend on it. And my friend looked at him, concerned, and said, what are you going to do? And he said, I'm going to go look for another doctor. <laughs> Choice is yours. This is what Joel is telling us. The choice is yours, but it is a choice you will have to make. You cannot ride the fence. And he's not telling you this because he's mad at you, and I'm not mad at you either. We're just giving you the straight facts here. Judgment is the day of the Lord is coming. At least one of them, that second coming of Jesus, that hadn't happened yet. That we know is coming. What are you going to do? You want the blessing of God, you make the presence of God a priority, a corporate priority. All right? Never in the history of the Christian church has there been an individual revival. Never happened because God doesn't do it that way. Every single one started in a gathering of willful people who showed up desperate for God, prioritizing their own repentance together. Listen, and and maybe while I'm on this subject, let me just deal with this. I know I can't be everybody's pastor. I get that some people don't appreciate the way I deliver. I get that some people, maybe, maybe you don't even like me. I don't know Why? You wouldn't like somebody like me. My wife's tried to explain it to me, but I, I, I just don't. Look, I know I'm not everybody's cup of tea, but if you're not here, get somewhere for the sake of your soul. Just do it. Prioritize corporate worship, corporate repentance. Here's the, here's the fourth and final exchange. Exchange wrong motivations for the right motivations. Verse 17. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests and the ministers of the Lord weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? This is an incredible statement. Let me unpack it for you. Because it demonstrates that at this point, repentance actually has happened. They've moved from being under judgment to being under blessing. And we know that because we see their primary concern. Their hearts have been so completely torn apart, so changed, that by the time they get to verse 17, they're not talking about themselves anymore. Here's the big idea. The best way to help yourself is to get over yourself. That's what we learn here. There is peace, there is blessing, there is shalom in this whole idea that like, all right, now it's all about my God. Their primary concern is how outsiders will view their God. Lord, don't don't let my disobedience, my lethargy, my indifference become a reproach to you. Not... We're about to get conquered. Or who are all these strange people encroaching on our borders? But but if they conquer us, they will not know our God because of the way we behave. That is profound. Because the chief concern of a truly repentant person is not for themselves. The chief concern of someone living under God's blessing is that God's name be rightly honored. Conversely, there's an undeniable correlation between self-centeredness and the refusal to turn. Every single time. That is true of every life that has ever been lived in rebellion. It's been interesting over about the last decade to watch a few Christian artists. Some of those, you, you probably bought their tickets, you listened to them, you were blessed by their lyrics, by their talent. Nothing wrong with that. But they would come out on a position that was just blatantly unbiblical. Or they would begin living a life that was just clearly contrary to Scripture. And once that happened and they revealed all that to the public, the path, I'm telling you, I've been watching this for 10 years, the path is just completely predictable. It starts with something like this. I've struggled and after deep and careful study, I've just determined that this is okay. And then i watch the rest of their trajectory. And within three years, the lyrics are no longer about Jesus. It's all about them. That is the fruit of self-centeredness. That's it. Happens to guys in my line of work all the time. You, You hear people always using themselves as some godly example. They're not as godly as they present. They're just not. I read another heartbreaking story just the other day about a guy who was one of my heroes. Jesus, though, reminds us nothing is hidden that will not one day be revealed. And the curtain got pulled back on something very horrible that he had done about uh, about a dozen years ago, and then he hid it from his church. And so now everybody's heartbroken about what, what are we going to do now? Well, he's not going to let you do anything. The church that he pastored and was part of for 38 years began the discipline process, and he left and went to another church. Six months later, there's four jokers on a video in my line of work saying that they've been working with him and he's cool now. Where was the local church? Where was his church in that? Well, that, there's no accountability in that. And now... Now, he's filing suit against people who revealed it, saying they shouldn't have revealed it. Guys, you call that a lot of things. You cannot call it repentance. You cannot call it. And according to the paradigm Joel has set up for us, that preacher is under the judgment of God. None of us. You put reverend behind your name if you want to. I don't mean squat. If you're living a duplicitous life, and then when it is revealed, you demonstrate by your reaction to it that you are in no way repentant or humble or sorry for the people that you have harmed. Self centeredness. I'm going to live this way. I'm going to do this. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. This is what I'm going to do. All kinds of people using God's name for themselves. You want to live under God's blessing, you've got to get over yourself. But let me tell you how much freedom there is in that. There is so much freedom in that. You know, it's, it's March. What is today, the 19th? Today's the 19th. Are you all ready for spring? Um, little side note. Just asking, hypothetically, for a friend. On February 2nd next year, if someone were to shoot the groundhog and he falls in the hole, does that count? Like, or it just stays outside the hole, right? Does that, can, we, can we go ahead with spring, like if that happens? Man, I hate that groundhog. I'm ready for warm weather, amen? I, I'm, I'm just ready for it. And so I, it's coming. It's coming. I know you're like, when? I know. Talk to a brand new couple just this week, to our church family, precious couple. That was their only question right at the end. Does the wind ever stop blowing up here? It does, eventually. Spring is coming. Easter, you'll get a little bit of it. Then we'll have that sort of what they call fake spring where we're like, yeah, and nope, it's not really here. And then we're going to get to Mother's Day and we're going to be home free, amen? It's going to be warm. It's going to get warmer. It's going to get greener. greener. That's because with the light of the sun comes life, Right. And then we'll be complaining about cutting the grass every week. But we, we look forward to that, though. I look forward to when I drive, the first time I drive and I don't have to turn the heater on in my truck and I smell that somebody has just cut their grass, and I'm like, oh, yeah, spring is here. All right. But in the last several years, we, even though we still anticipate warm, we also have learned a healthy fear of the sun, haven't we? Those same ultraviolet rays that carry that warmth also carry harmful elements that can wrinkle your skin, burn your body, and even initiate melanoma. The sun can be a blessing. The sun can also be a curse. This is what Joel is telling us about the day of the Lord. It is like the sun. Augustine referred to the gospel itself as a pharmacon. We get, we get our word pharmacy from it. He talks about it. It's like a drug. It can bring life. It can also bring death. And the question of Joel is this. Does your life, does your faith, does your perseverance, do, do your choices, do these things reflect someone living under the blessing of God? Or does it reflect someone living under the judgment of God? The difference between the two is the willingness to turn, swords first. I, I can't judge anybody's heart. I can't judge your motives. I'm not going to try to be a legalist about this. I'm just simply asking, what's God telling you right now in your heart of heart? Give me that. Give me That's no good for you. Give me that. Surrender. Turn. Live under the blessing of God. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your people and the blessing it is to impart these words of truth to them. I know that these men, these 12 men, sometimes say things that are hard. And sometimes, as we're going to get in later weeks, they can even seem harsh. But underneath, there is that same divine heart of love that desires to restore and to bless. And I pray today, Father, that you would help anyone in this room who needs to make an exchange make that exchange from from one who lives under judgment to one who lives under blessing. And that certainly is first and foremost about people who have not come to know Jesus. And if there's someone here in this building, someone online watching, who needs to give their heart and their life to him, turn from their sins, put their faith in his death and his resurrection, Lord, draw them by the power of your Holy Spirit today to one of our elders, one of our deacons, and do what only you can do. Tear open our hearts. Make us willing to lay down whatever swords we're still hanging on to. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here. And I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.